Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What then shall we say that the law was sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Father, thank you for your word. and Lord, may you teach us for your children. May they see the holy standards of your law. May they see the unyielding demands it places upon us. And may we rejoice that the lawgiver has, been, has come, has been the law keeper, and that our debt has been paid for the broken law, and that we'll rejoice even more in the gospel when we see the law afresh. And Father, for the, the person that's here today that doesn't know Christ, may they be awakened to see that they are in a dilemma that they cannot solve on their own. It's only the gospel. It's only the fulfillment of the law in Christ imputed to them and the penalty that he paid imputed to them that will set them free. Lord, help help us. We all needy people. Uh, may you lay aside all the distractions that uh, would impede us from hearing. May we have your fear grip this place afresh. May we realize that we are under the sound, not of a man, but uh, the word of the living God, and that it would grip us afresh. Uh, with the awesome privilege and responsibility we have to be attentive to the things that we hear, not only in the hearing, but in the application in our lives. And we thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We continue in the uh, best-known chapter, one of the best-known chapters of the Bible, as I mentioned, Romans 7. Romans 7. Uh, Last week we were in Romans 7, 1 through 6. And it shows us the glorious truth that in our union in Christ, which was detailed in Romans chapter 6, that we have been freed from the law. We've been freed from the binding, the captivity, and the bad fruit that the unregenerate produces as a result of living in the flesh. The law has unyielding demands uh, and consequences that apart from the union in Christ that we find in chapter 6, we have no hope at all of uh, fulfilling the demands upon the law. Now we come to verse 7. Verse 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Well, the opening words, uh, that as you've read your Bible and you spend time in Romans, you're going to find that uh, he is saying something he's already said numerous times. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. The opening of verse 7, what then, and further on in the verse, by no means, has already appeared six times in the letter. Uh, This is a device that Paul uses, a rhetorical device that's quite popular with him. Uh, As I mentioned, he would use this six times. Uh, Additionally, there's words like, then what, and what, that appear two times. The intense answer to his own question, by no means, appears seven times previously, and it will also appear three more times in the letter. So Paul was clearly coming with passion about these things. 
As I mentioned, he's already used this rhetorical device numerous times. Uh, and basically, when you interpret that or translate that, by no means, it's kind of soft. It means, though, this. Of course not. May it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. Far be it from our thoughts. And I would say in probably more of a, uh, of a, of a lesser language, Paul's saying, are you out of your mind? Are you absolutely crazy? Can you actually think this? In chapter 2, he says, you think that you can be set free from sin and yet live in it? You're crazy. And then he would say, oh, shall you go on sinning that grace shall abound? He says, what? By any means? By no means you can't do that. And so he would come now to this, this time of using those languages, using that rhetorical device. Now, let's remind ourselves what prompts his strong language here by no means. You'll see this in verse 7, that the law is sin. He's addressing a, a potential crowd that would make the law sinful. And they would say this because of what Paul has already said about the law leading up to this. And what he says about the law uh, has been pretty negative. It's been pretty harsh. In chapter 7, 1 through 6, he says that the law is, is bringing in you into bondage. It's bringing you into captivity. It, it, produces, it produces bad fruit. And so the people that's receiving this, they're going to say, Paul, wait a minute. You've said so much bad things about the law. I guess the law must be sinful. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. That's not good news. And then in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, he would say, for the law brings wrath. That's not good news. And then in Romans 5, 20, he would go on and say, now the law came in to increase the trespasses. Again, that's certainly not uh, music to your ears. Romans chapter 7, verse 1, that the law is binding on a person. Romans 7, 5, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Romans 7, verse 6, having died to that which held us captive, which was the law. So I've given you at least six or seven already, and we're not even halfway through Romans, that Paul is saying that, hey, the law is this. And these people are saying, well, wait a minute. If all this negativism is around the law, then I guess the law must be sinful. And that's what the argument is in verse 7. I love the way Chris, Christopher Ashe put it. He's quickly becoming one of my favorite authors. Christopher Ashe said, quote, we can imagine an objector writing, Dear Paul, you seem to think the law of Moses is a very bad thing. But I thought it was given by God to Moses. Since when has God changed his mind and decided it is bad when he originally told us it was good? It quotes. Well, Paul is going to show us that the law is good. Outside of Christ, the law is not good. In Christ, the law is good. And if you're outside of the Christ and the Holy Spirit does His work in your heart today through the law, then it actually is very good. Because it will lead you to the law uh, keeper and the one who paid the debt of the broken law that you and I were guilty of. So we're going to work our way through verses 7 to 12 and just introduce verse 13. I just want to spend uh, next week and, and perhaps more just on verse 13, and I'll tell you why shortly, is... We would have the, have the Lord today show us how good His law is, how bad sin is, and how glorious the gospel is. Because when you feel the weight of the law, the gospel shines like never before. 
And I hope that by doing this, as we work our way through Romans 7, this portion anyway, that there'll be a recovery in us individually and perhaps as a church, as well as sweeping into churches that preach the gospel. Two things that I think are absolutely necessary in the Christian experience today that I find in my own observation and in reading those who are very keen uh, observers of, of culture like David Wells and, and such is that there is indeed a void of a couple things. And when these things are avoided in the Christian experience and they're, they're avoided in the church, do you know what you don't produce? You don't produce humility. And if you don't produce humility, there is no spiritual growth. If you don't produce humility, there is no effectiveness for the gospel. Because without humility, pride reigns. It's either or. And where pride reigns, God shares his glory with no one. And he can stop a church and stop a Christian in their tracks if there's no humility. Because humility says it's all him. Pride says it's him and me. The two greatest needs among Christians today, in my estimation, is first the recovery of the fear of God. Recovery of the fear of God, so that the fear of God is the underlying principle in everything that we do in life. It is the dominant theme in the Bible. It appears over 250 times. It's more dominant than the love of God, but I, don't, I want to be careful here, because where the true fear of God is the love of God. The other understanding and, and, and need in the church today, I believe, is that we've lost the sight of how wicked, heinous, and evil sin truly is is that there is an absence of a keen understanding of sin. I say that from my own, my own life, and I say it in Christians that I observe. I, say, I, I look at it in a paralyzed church in the culture, is that where there's no fear of God, and there's no understanding of the heinous nature of sin, there is no right uh, understanding and proclamation, and, and even in all of the gospel. And if you look in the, in the Acts, what happens? Acts, the church has exploded, and it says, and, and, the, and, and the church knew peace, walking in the fear of God, and he added to the church. And truly, it may be all said what I said there about this failure to uh, walk in the fear of God and this failure to rightly understand sin. What is really lost is, is the awareness of the law. And the awareness that the law is not just information. That the law is the revelation of the knowledge of who God is. Is that his character is tied to his law. That's why there's two tablets. That's why there's four commands that deal with man's relationship with God. And that's why there's six that deal with man's relationship with man. The law is not just knowledge that you quote the Ten Commandments. The law is the very foundational truth of relationship with the living God. And where there's the fear of God and where there is a right understanding of sin, it will be because there's a right understanding and application of the law that leads you to the freedom of the gospel. You remember what Job? Remember that book, Job? Is it... Um, <laughs> yeah, we... How did Job end his, his book? Job is obviously a book about suffering, but I don't believe Job is primarily about suffering. I believe Job is a wonderful exposition of the first book in Calvin's Institutes, and it is the proper knowledge of God and the proper knowledge of self. 
In Job 42, 1 through 6, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's a safe statement. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You know what Job is saying? I've been awakened to see how much I thought I knew and how much I really don't know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make known it to me. And Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know what that is? It's the proper fear of God. And it's his proper fear of God because he has a proper understanding of himself. And all this is tied to the law. Let's take a look then in verse 7. And let's work, work our way through four truths today. Four truths today. The, and it's all tied under the, the title God's law and its relationship to sin. Its relationship to sin. We must recover two things in our evangelistic zeal and in our, uh, in our going out and sharing with the unbeliever. Two things. One, let's go back and use creation as an argument towards evangelism. Creation is a great place to go. Because you can talk about the wonders of creation and the creativity of God. And you can talk, that leads right into Adam and Eve, which leads into Romans 1. And so you can find yourself talking about the gospel pretty quick out of creation. The other thing that we need to do in our evangelistic zeal is that we need to be sensitive we need to be sensitive to where the world is right now. And the world right now is not walking in the fear of God. And we need to witness that, give witness to the majesty of his person. And without the law, you're not going to be able to share the gospel in a proper way. You can't meet with someone and say, hey, listen, God has a great plan for your life. Believe in Jesus, and it's going to be good. That's an incomplete, actually it's a false gospel, and you're, you're not going to get anywhere with that, except that you're going to confuse someone, and you might have them sign a card or sign a back of a Bible, and next thing you know, they think they're saved, and they're not. So no fault, you can't have a false gospel. You've got, you got to paint, as we said numerous times, the bad news so that you embrace the good news. And the bad news is simply this. You are under the, the, the heavy hand of God in His law, and you can't get out under that on your, on your own. In order for you to enjoy the freedom that is in Jesus Christ, and not for him to give you the best life now, that's not what I'm talking about. When To get this, the, the joy of walking with Jesus, you've got to climb up Mount Sinai and get crushed so that you can mount, walk up Mount Calvary and get saved. There's two mountains. You, I don't know if you're a mountain climber or a hiker, but that's two mountains you've got to go up. And you've got to hear the law from Mount Sinai. And you've got, you got to see and look at the cross. The cross on Mount Calvary. More on that later. Let's take a look at these truths. Verse 7. Verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. There, there is the first thing we see about the law and its relationship to sin. God's law defines sin. We don't define it. We can't be subjective and define what we want it to say. Thus saith the Lord, period. And that means that what God's law says is, is what the definition of sin is. 
He would go on and say, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, I know that you know that's part of the moral law of God as comprehended in the Ten Commandments. But when you read your Bible and you come across the word law, make sure that you know what is being talked about. The law is often uh, referred to as the entire word of God, the books of Moses, the gospel, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws. And in this case, the moral law comprehended in the Ten Commandments. I won't repeat the illustration I used last week, but as you go out and you share the gospel with your neighbors, and you share the gospels with the current generation out there, uh, use the Ten Commandments because they don't know them. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. Remember the moral law was given on two tablets, a relationship with God and a relationship with people. I want to challenge you to do something this week. Talk to a neighbor or talk to someone, you know, that you have a burden with for, for, the, for, the, uh, for the gospel. Or just randomly stop someone and see if they'll talk to you and ask them this question. You might want to preface say, listen, I'm not trying to be a weirdo. Uh, <laughs> but I want to ask you a question. Do you know any of the Ten Commandments of God? And I'd be curious what your responses would be. I would argue that you are going to, and especially if you ask someone that's 40 and under, or even younger, I would argue that you're probably going to get, no, I'm not really sure. And you might even get what I got. Uh, Be nice to one another. Be kind to one another. Try it. Because if, if, if what Paul says is true, that the law is what defines sin, how can we project the gospel if they don't know they need the gospel? And how are they going to know they need the gospel? Is it they're feeling the weight of Mount Sinai upon them? The Ten Commandments. But I find it interesting that as Paul would write this in verse 7, he would say, I did not know what sin was until the law said you shall not covet. Why didn't he list any of the other nine? Why that one? One of the most insightful understandings of that came from uh, Francis Schaeffer, I read his book, True Spirituality. I encourage you to read it. He said this. The climax in the Ten Commandments is the Tenth Commandment in Exodus 20, 17. Thou shalt not covet. The commandment not to covet is an entirely inward thing. Coveting is never an outward thing. It is an intriguing factor that this is the last command that God gives us in the Ten. And thus the hub of the whole matter. We break this commandment not to covet before we break any of the others. Anytime we break one of the other commandments of God, it means that we've already broken this one. Think about it. Coveting is entirely an issue of the heart. I can lie. That's an issue of my heart, but my tongue. I can commit adultery. That's an issue of the body. 
Coveting starts in here. And coveting is what awakened the Apostle Paul. Because if you look on the outward, the outward of the Apostle Paul, what do we know about his life? He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Wait a minute. How could you be blameless? Because that was before the inward working of the command to covet. He says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 through 6, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a, hundred, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What? It's like the, uh, the, the, the man, the young man, that uh, came to Jesus. Jesus says... Uh, um, he says, teacher, what shall I do to, inter- uh, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he rattles them all, and not all of them. He didn't say them all. He didn't have to. And the man has the blindness to look at Jesus and says, I- I'm, I'm in. I did them all. I did them all. You know what the problem with this was? And you know what the problem with, 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 um, uh, with this understanding of the law is that like we saw last week in the Old Testament, sanctification is an external thing. In the New Testament, sanctification is an internal transformation thing. Paul's understanding of the law prior to Christ was, hey, I'm blameless. All external. And when you talk to people, and you ask them about the Ten Commandments, if they give you one, which I doubt they will, but they might, but then go to the next one, and then go to the next one, Eventually, you're going to get probably three into it, and they're going to have to admit that they broke one. The, the point I want to get that is that is that we're blinded. We're blinded that the law defines our relationship with God. The law defines what sin is. It's not me looking around and saying that I'm not as bad as that person. The law knows no partiality. And you and I are not allowed to take the law, not allowed to ignore the law and put our own definition of what sin is. We have to let the law speak for itself. And the Apostle Paul was awakened to the inward workings of the law, which convinced him and convicted him that he was guilty before God because thou shalt not covet, and he knew that he did. He knew that he did. So I want you to think about it in your own life, even as a Christian. Do you know what coveting is? We, we, saw, we saw that. We read the, the, we saw that. But do you know what coveting really is? It's telling God that I am dissatisfied with your will in my life. Coveting is saying that I am a discontented child of God. And that I need my circumstances changed. I need my environment changed. Uh, I need my relationships changed. I covet that place, or I covet that relationship, or I cover that, covet that circumstance. See, that, so coveting really is the hub, as Schaefer said, of all of it. Because if you peel the onion back on covenant, it's never external. Now, it may be caused by what you see external, but coveting is an issue of the heart. Coveting says, I'm not satisfied with your sovereignty and where I am, what I'm doing right now, and what you've given me. And there are a ton of Christians, even in this room, 
that are dissatisfied, that are discontent, and think that if their temporal existence, whatever it would be, would change, that they would find satisfaction. And the answer is, you will not. Because contentment is found in Christ alone, whether it be in a prison, whether it be on the shore side, or whether it be on a ship that's about to be shipwrecked. So then we find then that the law defines sin. And we must get a hold of that. We must even as Christians see that God establishes an absolute objective standard that defines sin. And we are not allowed to mess with that. We are not allowed to mess with that. Because when you mess with that, you know what happens? You cheapen the gospel. When you mess with the unyielding demands of the law, then you cheapen the atonement. Is it you've made it just another thing that God did? So a high regard for the law crushes us and drives us to a high regard of the gospel. Why? Because the law defines sin. Law defines sin, which is what God has said caused the rupture in our relationship with Him. We'll talk more about the seriousness of sin, as I mentioned next week. Um, it's, we need to recover that big time. Let's move on to verse 8. God's law aroused sin in this fallen flesh. Not only does God's law define sin, but God's law arouses or inflames sin in the fallen flesh. But sin seizing or taking hold of an opportunity through the, co- through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This wasn't just Paul seeing covetousness as well. I'm, I'm probably coveting that position. He says, no. When, when the law came to me, it, it, it showed me that I am full of covetousness. That I am totally depraved. And covetousness is certainly one of my besetting sins. And you know what the law did? The law set the standard, thou shalt not covet. And sin comes along and it takes the law and it explodes sin in the heart, the mind, and the body of the unbeliever. God's law excites sin. God's law cannot suppress sin. Remember I told you last week about kids. Saw it with little Alice yesterday. Little Alice. How old is Alice? 16 months. Little sinner. <laughs> so we're at Jonathan and Caitlin's yesterday and... Uh, and and, and little Alice, little sinner, is standing over there by where the television is. And there's a little tray. And she puts her foot on the tray and turns around to look at her daddy. And her daddy says, Alice, get off of that. She puts it down. And then she looks over to him and she puts it back up. I thought, Alice, thank you for supporting what the law does. <laughs> Is the law, the law not only defines sin, but it arouses sin. Why? Because outside of Jesus Christ, the law will tell you not, will tell you not to do this. And you, because of your unregenerate passions of the flesh, which he says, you're going to want to do the very thing it forbids. Here's a story for you from St. Augustine in his Confessions. It's a good read. He said, um, he tells of a time in his youth when he and a band of his friends 
went into a neighbor's field at night to steal pears. They shook the neighbor's pear tree, knocking down a large quantity of pears. Then carried them off, eating a few, but throwing most of them to some pigs. Why did Augustine steal the pears? With characteristic thoroughness, this great medieval theologian analyzes the question for many pages. Was it the beauty of the pears? They were beautiful, it is true, since they were part of God's creation, but that was not why he stole them. He had others of even greater beauty at home. Was he hungry and needed something to eat? That was not it. Did he want to be approved by his friends? That was part of the reason, he says. But it does not explain why the others, like himself, should have given approval by the others. That was part of the reason, he says. But it does not explain why the others, like himself, should have given approval for such an act of stealing. Why should steel be praiseworthy? At last, Augustine gets to the real reason, saying, I, I only picked them so that I might steal. I love nothing in it except the thieving. It was his desire to steal because of the prohibition to steal. His desire and our desire outside of Christ is to break the command. It's to live in rebellion to the command. We see that in Romans 1. We see that they were excited and God turned them over to their desires and they began to celebrate all these deviant lifestyles because the law outside of Christ, if you're outside of Christ, the law not only it defines your separation from God, but the law also inflames your passions. If you look back at verse 5, we see another word for it. It's the word aroused. The law stimulates or stirs up within the unregenerate heart to not only do what is forbidden, but to delight in it as well. Can we see how heinous, starting to see how heinous sin really is? Sin takes something that's good and perfect and righteous, the law of God, and it uses it for the destruction of God's choice creation, us. The law is good. The law is righteous. He's going to tell us that. And we'll close with that in verse 12. But don't look at your clock. It's not now. And so, but when you look at, but, but when you see what the law does, the law inflames upon you your sinful passions. And here is what makes the gospel so great. Because some of you have tried in the strength of yourself to change yourself. Some of you have tried to say, well, I'm just not going to commit this sin anymore. <laughs> or I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm not going to lose my cool with my kids anymore. Even Christians do that. Is it, you're, I'm, I'm, gonna be, I'm, I'm not going to go to that website anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. And the minute that you try to do that, try to kill sin in the strength of yourself, you know what's going to happen? The very thing you're trying to kill is going to control you. It will. It'll control you. And the more that you try to do that, the more that you inflame the passions within you and you find yourself failing and failing and failing on the very things that you say you don't want to do. And that's when you hear the gospel. And that's when you hear of one who came and lived a perfect life keeping the law that you could not and dies on a cross paying the debt for the law that you disobeyed. 
and that he's risen from the dead and the father accepts that, that he can justify sinners because they believe on his son. And if you're outside of Jesus Christ today and you're trying to kill sin in the strength of, your de- of yourself, let me encourage you and let me, uh, let me just, with the greatest amount of love I can, stop it. Because you can't. You're trying to kill something, one, that you can't kill. And you're trying to kill something that's already been killed for you. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And what happens, Paul tells us in Romans 6 and 7, that we died with Christ, that we died with him. During the ABF hour this morning, we were talking about how God doesn't give us a holy zap of things to cause us to be holy. I've been waiting for decades for the holy zap. You know what God does? Is that when you're born again, he writes his fear on your heart. He sheds your, uh, your heart full of the love of the Spirit, Romans 5. He gives you the indwelling Christ so that you can overcome and endure all things. And so instead of praying, Lord, give me strength for just this day, the prayer is, Lord, thank you for the strength you've already given me. Let me step out in faith and and, and utilize what you've already given me. You know what that is? That's a life of faith. And it's the same thing with this. When you're tempted and you feel the temptation, whatever it may be, and it's intense and it will be, you know what you do? is you go to Romans 6 and Romans 7. And you say, wait a minute. I died to you. Talk, talk it down. I died to you. I don't have to give in to you. I don't have to have an outburst of anger. I don't have to be given in to lust. I don't have to be given in to covetousness. I don't have to. Why? Because I died to you. How did I die to you? Not because of me, but because of him. I had been crucified with Christ. I died. When Christ died, you know, for sin... We died with him to sin. And now the power, because of his resurrection, dwells within us. What does Paul say in Philippians 3? I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Christians are paralyzed by discontent and sin, besetting sins, because they forget their union in Christ and they don't walk by faith in that union. And I'm not trying to make it easy. It's not. But I can tell you, it works. And I'm not being a pragmatist, so don't throw me out. But when you start talking down temptation, talking about sin because of your union in Christ, that's a faith walk. And that's thanking him for what he's already given you so you don't have to be enslaved to it. And when he gets back to the law, what does the law do? The law arouses within us. And by the way, even as a Christian, you're going to face these, these same types of, uh, of arousements that come from the, but you're not going to have to give in to them. You give in to them. Christians sin by choice. We don't have to sin. You say, well, I'm, I'm just weak. Well, yeah, we're all weak. But our union in Christ allows us to be overcomers. Read the letters to the Revelation. He talks about he that overcomes. Well, he's given us the power to overcome. Walk in that. Now look at verse 9 and 11. Here's the third thing. So Paul would tell these, uh, these doubters that the law is not sin. The law is not bad. Yes, the law is painful. It defines sin. The law will be aroused by sin in the fallen flesh. And the third thing is that the law condemns the sinner. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Obviously not physically. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You see three times, died, death, killed. 
Sin looks at the commandment and slays the human being. Sin looks at every commandment and kills us. And under the old covenant, it was do and live or don't and die. Before there was Sinai, there was a law. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. I wonder what that would have been like to hear the word die. They had no idea. They didn't know what it was like. Die? What they should have done was simply believe God. Well, they didn't, and you know that. It wasn't physical death. That did come as a result eventually. But this was when they died. They died spiritually. And true moral guilt, both objective as lawbreakers needing justification, and true moral guilt in the conscience occurred. So now they're guilty before God objectively. They've broken the law that carries over past the, the Mosaic Covenant too, and, and all the, the laws. But they also encountered something that is the most painful thing in all of life, and that is a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. And lawbreakers, you will have a guilty conscience until, and God forbid, until you so cauterize your conscience and it becomes so hard that you can sit and hear the law and the gospel and you're not even moved. May God help any of us here that has a hardened heart that we come week in, week out and we hear the truth and it never makes itself into our lives. Is it we'll hear sermons and then by 12 o'clock we're home, we have lunch and by 1 o'clock we can't even remember what we heard. Friends, I got to warn us about that. And it, it's not just you, it's the preacher too. Do you know what truth heard and not applied does? It hardens your heart. Truth known, truth proclaimed, and not applied or lived hardens your heart. And it will lead you to a self-deception. James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And the worst form of deception is self-deception. It's to think all is well when all is anything but well. And the law condemns us. And when you read the law and you say, well, I'm not that bad. Then what you've done is you've replaced God as a final authority on defining sin. And you've made yourself the final authority. And let me add this to you, when you're choosing what you're going to do by way of entertainment, by way of pleasures, by way of whether it be uh, the internet or whatever it be, movies, I don't, use this. If your criteria in watching anything is, well, it's really not that bad, you've just failed. And how many times do we say, well, it's only one or two words. If your criteria in choosing how you live, well, it's really not that bad then you've just compromised truth. Because we are told to abstain from all forms of evil. Not abstain from some. Not abstain from, uh, abstain from all forms except this one because that movie is really good. The law condemns us. The law brings us face to face with the absolute perfection of who God is. And remember, the law doesn't stand apart from the lawgiver. The law points us to the character of the lawgiver. And so in breaking his law, it's an affront to the lawgiver. 
And thus we fall under this condemnation because the law says thou shall not covet, and we do. So now we stand guilty, not just because we broke the law, but we stand guilty because the lawgiver has been offended. You know what's amazing about that? I, I like the story of the woman caught in adultery because every one of us are adulterers. You say, well, I don't commit adultery. Uh, you are a spiritual adulterer. And so am I. But you know what gets me about the woman caught in adultery? Is she's standing there, and Jesus is kneeling down. And everybody's gone now. And she's crushed to the bone. I mean, she's just absolutely shamed. And the Lord looks at her and says, where are they? Has anyone condemned you? And I wonder if she was thinking, no, no. Uh, but I bet he's going to give me a royal raking over. I bet he's going to reap it upon me. So she's probably scared. She was thinking, I wonder if there's any hope here. And then, then he says to her, have they condemned you? And all she could say was no. She's at the mercy of him. And then here is the marvel of that story. And I like it so much because I'm her. He stands up and he looks at her. And he says these most freeing words, and we should say that to each other in our relationships, is that he looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And now, you know what the astounding thing about that story is? She stands guilty of breaking the law, and the lawgiver is talking to her. He could have looked at her and said, lawbreaker, no mercy, no grace. They didn't condemn you because they're lawbreakers too. But I'm not the lawbreaker. I'm the lawgiver and you stand condemned. I wonder sometimes as Christians we don't treat each other like that. We're just way too harsh on each other. We forget. We forget what we were. We find ourselves because maybe we're not applying truth that we've heard into our own life. I'll give you an honest confession as a preacher. It's like 22 years we've been here. Here's one of my greatest fears is to preach what I don't live. Is to preach what I don't live. To tell you about the fruit of the Spirit, which is the passion of my life, and then in my home, there's never, there's a barren tree. Now, I'm not saying I'm that way. I think I got a few, but... I'm not saying I'm living, trying to live a hypocritical life, but it is extremely humbling to proclaim truth and yet know that there is a gap. And it's like that for you too as a Christian. You, if, if you're reading your Bible daily, I hope you are, and, and, and you're going to come to the point in your life where you're going to say, I, I know far more than I live. And that's good. I'm not saying that you're trying to be a double, double-minded or, or what you are at home, what you are outside is different. I'm not talking about that. But that should humble you, that you know more than you do. Because you know when you're humble, you know what happens? The gap starts to close. And truth starts to be applied more. And so we've seen that the law so far in these verses, it defines sin, it arouses sin in the flesh, it condemns sin. But now look at uh, verse 12, and we'll wind this down. Verse 12. Paul would say, the end of my argument with all of you who thinks the law is sinful, is just the opposite. 
The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And you know why the law is that way? Because the giver of the law is that way. Don't, do, not, do not ever separate the law from the lawgiver. It's just like sometimes I remember to my shame, you know, and when I met Joy in the church we were at, we used to have a soul-winning uh, soul night. We would go out on Thursday night, people would gather, and we had uh, all these new people that moved into the Roanoke Valley. We had their addresses, and we'd go out two by two and knock on doors, just cold turkey knocking on doors, and uh, it petrified me to no end. Um, you know, and I would always go with someone who was going to do all the talking. And, and so I remember going out to these different places and knocking on doors and getting in there. And, and, and you know what? And I'm shamed to think about this. Is we would go and when we would get into the house, we'd say, hey, we're from X and X uh, Baptist Church. And, uh, you know, we want to welcome you into the area. And uh, we just like to uh, offer you our church. And then uh, if you were to die today, do you know if you go to heaven? And next thing you know, here comes the script, the Romans Road. And I, I, I know the Romans Road's effective, I know that, but there was the script. There wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot of caring about those people. We had to get through the script. And then when you get to the end of the script, you ask them to pray. You know the prayer. And then, then we'd go back to the church, and all these teens would be together, and they would start bragging about how many people received the Lord. And I look back and I'm thinking, you didn't really care about them, did you? You didn't really care about the fact is that they may be struggling as parents with teenagers and they just need someone to love them and tell them the truth and, and come alongside them. You didn't, maybe they're having a hard time in their marriage. I remember going into one house in particular. I remember two and one was... Uh, it was pretty painful as we went in there, and I was the silent partner. And I remember my other partner, he was doing all the preliminaries, and then he got ready with the script, and he says, yeah, and, uh, and, and my friend Jim has some things he wants to say to you. <laughs> but no, it was, um, it was sad, because where was the compassion? Where was the, where was the bringing of the law with the goal to get them to Christ? And the other times, you know, just going out, that the, the pride that we were doing something and just the, the, the self-exalting because we gave the gospel. I have a reminder of those days because uh, we had a fisherman's club with the men and we meet every month. And if you would, um, you got like a point for every track you passed out, three points if you actually shared the gospel. And five points if someone made a profession of faith. And then you'd tally up all your, your points. And at the end of the month, uh, whoever had the most got a nice leather-bound New Testament. I got one. And I look at it. And I look at it with a repentant heart every time I grab a hold of it. Friends, let's share the law. Let's share the law with sinners. But let's make sure that we don't separate the law from the loving lawgiver. And when we share the gospel, when we were sharing the gospel in that home, the gospel was all about a script. It wasn't about the person of Jesus Christ. And when you're going to share the gospel, your goal is to represent Christ. It's to share Christ. And get into your Bible. Get so, and, I, and I'm not saying Romans Road's bad. And I'm not saying, you know, invite people to receive Christ. We should do that. But let's make sure that we know him so well that in our conversation evangelistically that we're talking about him as he is, our bestest of friends. 
Let's get to know him so much that when we share the law that condemns, we bring him in that, hey, there's an answer to this. And he stands ready. He stands ready. Okay, finally, the law is holy, righteous, and good. We already read that. But Psalm 19, 7 through 11, I'll read this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know what the law is for? The law is, is to show us Christ. We, we got that. It's, a school, it's, a, it's our schoolmaster, our tutor to bring us. But the law is to be the rule of life. It's the rule of life given to man by God, the holy lawgiver, to govern our dispositions of his heart, our th- hearts, thoughts, words, and conduct. And do you know what the essence of the law really is? It's captured in what Jesus would say to a lawyer. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now get a hold of this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The law was given to us by a loving God so that we would love God. We broke the law, so what did he do? He sent his son out of his love to fulfill the law for us, to pay the debt of the broken law, so that forever, you know what we're going to do forever? We're going to obey the great commandment without sin, without any, any hindrance. We're going to obey the great commandment forever, and that is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so the law is good. The law is very good. The law shows us the holiness of God. And next week in verse 13, Lord willing, we're going to, we're going to begin looking at, uh, let me read 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me what is good in order that sin might be known to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What is he saying? Paul could not even define how wicked sin was. He says, it is sinful beyond measure. Well, we're going to try to understand more and more just how heinous sin truly is. Because the more that we know of our depravity, the more we know the grandeur of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for your law. Thank you that it does crush us. Thank you that it does bring condemnation. But thank you it also shows us who you are in your righteous, holy, and just character. And thank you that in your Son, we see the manifestation of Him in your love that fulfills the law and all its requirements and demands. And we look forward to that great day in heaven when we will forever obey you without the taintedness of our fallenness. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.